Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, will you? We're going to resume our study today. It's our series on Stephen's last words. It's a sermon that he was giving to the Jerusalem Council, who's kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court. They are charging Stephen with subverting Judaism. Uh, you might remember this is after Stephen, who was one of, the, one of the church leaders, he was given the task of helping out with feeding a bunch of visiting Jews who'd come from the surrounding areas of Jerusalem to come in for the religious festivals. Thousands had come to Christ. They were staying in Jerusalem. They had to provide provisions for them, food. And so Stephen was part of that group. They chose him. And many people think that was kind of the start of deacons in the church who, you know, served the church. So he, he was uh, helping out with distributing the food and, and meeting the needs. And he wasn't your run-of-the-mill deacon. It says in Acts 6, 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. But these Jewish authorities were all ginned up for, for several reasons. Number one, they were upset that the early church was gaining converts from the Jewish population. In fact, we read in Acts 6-7 that many Jewish priests were converting to Christ from Judaism. They were not able to explain, in addition, and match the, the miracles that the apostles and Stephen were doing. And they felt like this uh, put themselves at a disadvantage. And uh, so they were jealous of the rapid growth of Christianity, which this all posed a threat uh, to the Jews. So Stephen is dragged before this Jerusalem council and the, and the high priest, and he's asked to give an explanation for these false charges that have been given uh, to him. It, they said he's speaking blasphemy against Moses, speaking blasphemy against the law, that he, he wants the the temple to be destroyed. All these are lies that, again, trumped up, but this is what the, the people are, are saying. So Stephen responds with a very pointed message that the Jewish leadership has historically mistreated the prophets, the people sent to them, and that the Jewish leadership has contrived a religious system and, and traditions that got in the way of hearing God and and responding to God authentically. And the last time we were in Acts, we talked about this, that you know, even churches, Christian churches, get in the way with just all kinds of expectations, uh, some written, some unwritten rules that you have that you got to abide by, and it just creates obstacles for people. And they set up these man-made rules to please God, and, and like the Jewish council, they're very, very narrow-minded in their approach. And in this case, with the Jewish council, they're basically saying, hey, if God's going to work, it's going to be in Israel. If God's going to work, it's going to be through the ministry of the temple, but not outside of those things. And so what Stephen does is that he challenges this notion in Acts 7. And these would end up being his last words. As we know, it doesn't end well for Stephen. So let's take a look at this. Let's all stand as we look at this section of his sermon. Now, we looked in the first eight verses with uh, Stephen had a section on Abraham. This one's on Joseph. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now, there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and 
great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, and Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from his sons of Hamar in Shechem. So we see in this passage that he refers to the, the brothers of Jacob and people within the, the faith community. He calls them brothers or even fathers, and we'll see why that's important here later. Stephen points out that this jealousy that the council, Jewish council had towards Stephen and the rest of the early church was not something new, but it was also present in the Jewish patriarchs used broadly here of Joseph's family, particularly his brothers. They were jealous of someone that God had sent to them. And really, what a master stroke it is of Stephen to be able to take this story from Old Testament history, and, and his audience would be very familiar with this, and making his point. And of course, this is about Joseph, who as we read the Old Testament story about him, has been put into a position of prominence. So what I want us to do is kind of hearken back to this story of Joseph. We're going to see the, the connection with the passage here in Acts and see if we can't pick out some gems. We'll start with Genesis 37, verses 2 through 4. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel uh, loved Joseph more, who's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So this rift between Joseph and his brothers, it started at a very young age for Joseph. Now, we're not told as they looked at Joseph from afar off uh, and Joseph told on them. We're not told of what the infraction was. They could have been lazy. They could have been bickering with one another. Whatever it was, Joseph told Jacob, his father. Basically, Joseph couldn't put up with their shenanigans. And, but the brothers felt like, hey, he's tattling on us. And from that point on, he was an outcast with his brothers. And it, but it says that Jacob preferred Joseph over the rest of his sons. And this further agitated his brothers to the point that Genesis 37.4 says they were continually hostile to Joseph, could not speak peacefully to him. Now, Joseph has a dream. And in the dream, he's told that he's going to excel above his brothers. And he reveals to his brothers what the dream was. And as you can imagine, they do not take that all that well. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? 
So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words, Genesis 37.8. So one day, they see him out in the fields. And we read then in Genesis 37.18-20, through 20, they saw him from afar and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Now think for a minute what the facts are. I mean, what is the offense? He told his father the truth of what the brothers were doing. He's wise. He's given these dreams. He's a hard worker, and his brothers hate him for it. In fact, it created such a jealousy that it tells us they wanted to kill him. I'd remind you, by the way, of James 4.2 that says, you desire and do not have, so you commit murder. In other words, it links jealousy with wanting to do harm with other people. Now, we don't usually like to admit when we're jealous. We don't take kindly to others maybe telling us, hey, it sounds to me like you're jealous. We, we don't like to admit that. But one surefire way to try to figure out if you're jealous or not is ask yourself whether you enjoy seeing ill will come to another person, that person who maybe is in the bullseye. Chances are you're jealous. And jealousy was a primary motivation of the religious leaders toward the apostles. And this is why uh, Stephen is connecting the dots between the jealousy of the people against Joseph and the jealousy of the Jewish consul against the apostles and Stephen. In fact, we read elsewhere in Acts, in Acts 5, 17 and 18, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. And Acts 13.45 says, but when the Jews saw the crowds, you know, they're bigger than our crowds, they got more people than we do, they were filled with jealousy, began to contradict or argue with Paul. Listen, when jealousy fills the hearts of religious leaders, all evil can be done. I mean, people get jealous over power, they get jealous over money, they get jealous over crowds, and we probably are all too familiar with what jealousy does within our own hearts, within families, within our own relationships, but put it in a religious community and it's multiplied how ugly it is. So if such things motivate religious institutions or the leaders within those institutions, no amount of marketing or making nice is going to cover up the stench. So the brothers hatched a plan for Joseph's demise. But Reuben, a brother, intervenes. He suggests, instead of killing him, let's just throw him in a pit. And what he's thinking, he although he doesn't say this aloud to his brothers, He's thinking, then later, I'll go and rescue him. I'll present him to our father, and it'll make me look like a hero to my father. 
That's what Reuben's thinking. Doesn't seeking the acceptance of another person make you do crazy stuff? It sure did here. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, end quote, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So one brother wants to use Joseph as a pawn to gain approval from their father. But some other brothers came up with another plan. Hey, we're not going to profit so much by killing him or just leaving him here in the pit. How about we sell him? There's a great idea. We'll get some money off of him. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then uh, Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So since he's a commodity, we read later in Genesis 37, 36, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain, captain of the guard. But God has other plans for Joseph. Even after his brothers meant harm to him, and it reminds us doesn't it, of that last section in Genesis, even even though other people meant harm, God brought about good, it says in Genesis 50. Well, we read on in Genesis 39, 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that, the, let's just stop right there for a second. He's in Egypt. He's in Potiphar's, a Egyptian household, and God is still using him. You know, I think for us as Christians, many of us like to be in the Christian bubble. We want to just do business with Christians. Uh, you know, we want to just have Christians around us in a job. And we walk around with this Christian bubble, thinking, you know, that's going to be more comfortable and better for us. And yet right here we see a story. God had Joseph exactly where he wanted him, in a, in a pagan household with a pagan job, and God was using him. Remember that. Not that there's anything wrong with working with other Christians, but that don't think that, that somehow God's not using you. God uses your influence in whatever situation you're in. And for Joseph, that was here in Potiphar's house. So Joseph found favor in his sight, Potiphar, and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form 
and appearance. As if it wasn't enough that he was successful, his brothers now also can add this to why they hated him. He was good looking. I mean, the guy had it all. He was a stud, he was successful, and he had power, and they hated him for it. Joseph is given this position in Egypt, and he's successful. Well, fast forward, and what happens? He's in a sticky situation. And you probably remember this story, but uh, Potiphar's wife makes sexual advances to Joseph. Joseph rebuffs her efforts. And by the way, I like that the story says he ran. You know, and for guys or for women, any of us, sexual temptation cannot be, you know, just, well, you know, let me just see how I feel. Let me, you know, um, just stay right here in the situation. Most of the time, the only thing that works is run. Get out of the situation, all right? Usually the best thing you can do. Anyway, he runs. She feels rejected. So what does she do? She basically cries rape. And Potiphar hears the story that she tells. And what does he do? He puts Joseph in prison. So now he's unjustly accused and he's put in prison. And what do we read in the face of that? But the Lord was with Joseph. This is Genesis 39, 21. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Think about maybe the toughest time that you're going through or have had to go through. Aren't we prone to think, you know, prone to think, Lord, deliver me from all this. I mean, I, I want to be delivered from this so I can serve you, right? I can love you. I can worship you. But the Lord says, hey, I'm with you the whole way. I'm with you in the midst of the trouble. The Lord was with Joseph. He's in prison unjustly accused. Well, then later, basically two staff members of Pharaoh are thrown into prison with Joseph. They both have a dream, two different dreams. One dream leads to the demise of the one staff member. Another one leads to that, uh, the staff member uh, getting out of prison and being restored to his original position. That staff member, the one who would be restored to his original position, indeed gets out. And Joseph says to him, he says, hey, Remember me, okay, when you get out so I can get out of prison. Well, he gets out, and guess what? Doesn't say a word. Doesn't help Joseph out at all. Now, what would any of us think if family members use us, abuse us for their own means? Our siblings leave us for dead. They later sell us as property. We're in jail. There's a person there who can help us get out of jail legitimately. Doesn't do it. Your family hates you. Your friends forget about you. And by the way, this is not a case of people just, you know, kind of made a mistake. I forgot. Joseph's brothers deliberately meant harm to him. Right? Now, what would we do? If this happened to us, 
How would we operate with that? Notice that Joseph doesn't see this as an opportunity for the flesh. I mean, he could have said this. He could have said, obviously, it doesn't matter if I obey God or not. I'm going to get shafted. So I think what I'm going to do, I'm just going to party down. I'm going to indulge the flesh. I mean, I'm owed this now. He could have said that. No, he continues to honor God. He doesn't see his misfortune as an excuse for bitterness, for unforgiveness, or for indulging. Well, fast forward, a couple years pass. And Pharaoh has a dream. And no one can interpret the dream. And the staff member, who is the cellmate of Joseph, says, oh, I remember. You know, I had a guy that was in prison, Joseph. And he tells Pharaoh about Joseph. So Pharaoh brings Joseph into him and tells him about the dream. And Joseph interprets the dream. And he lets him know that, hey, there's going to be a famine, and we're to make provision. Egypt is to make provision because of the famine. And so what does Pharaoh do? He puts Joseph in charge of making these provisions, and he gives him even more power. We read this in Genesis 41, 40. You shall be over my house, and all of my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So at 30 years old, check this out. Joseph is the most powerful man in Egypt except for Pharaoh. And guess who it is that now needs food and needs to travel to Egypt? Jacob sends Joseph's brothers to Egypt to get some food. And you know the rest of the story. Through a couple meetings, uh, the first meeting, Joseph basically disguises himself, but later... Joseph reunites with his brothers. He had the power. He had the authority at that point to see them killed. He could have thrown them in jail. They threw him in a pit. They wanted to kill him. They sold him. And instead of paying them back, what does he do? He values their relationship more. He expresses grace. He forgives them. Listen to this. Amazing. Genesis 45, 1 through 7. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. It's amazing to me, after all that his brothers did to him, what happens? Joseph 
is more concerned about the feelings of his brothers. He's more concerned that they not be fraught with shame and guilt. It's an amazing story of incredible character. Well, what do we learn from Joseph? Well, number one, Joseph is treated horribly by his brothers. And by the way, in Acts 7, what did Stephen call the Jewish council and authorities? He called them his brothers. Stephen was holding up a mirror to the Jewish council. Just like Joseph was mistreated by his brothers, so you are mistreating the people that God has sent to you. Is it not true that for many of us, the greatest hurts come from those we esteem the most or love the most? I'm sure the case with Joseph. Secondly, Stephen speaks of affliction and great affliction being upon Joseph. I think we should take note that the godliest men and women face great trials and affliction. We must resist subscribing to the notion that if I follow God, he's not going to give me my best life, like success and money and everything's going to be easier now that I am being faithful to God. That is not the biblical record. God is with us. God strengthens us. But we will experience affliction. <laughs> really, the question is, do you want to experience the trials dependent on Christ, or do you want to do it alone? Because I guarantee you, you're going to experience the trials no matter what. The question is whether you want to do it dependent on Christ or just doing it in your own flesh. Thirdly, not only is Stephen a reflection of mistreatment like Joseph from the, the people of God or, or people who claim to follow God, but Joseph is also a precursor to Christ. Why? Because Christ was mistreated by his own people, though he did nothing wrong. Joseph did nothing wrong, mistreated by his own people. And let us notice it was on the second trip by Joseph's brothers that they recognized him. And it's going to be at Christ's second coming that people will recognize him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The fourth point is made in verses 14 through 16. Now, like the story of Abraham in the first eight verses, God worked in Joseph even though he was not in the promised land. God's supernatural activity occurs outside of the prescribed areas that these Jewish consul or the Jewish Old Testament saints thought that God would work. We read this. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver and the sons of Hamar in Shechem. Well, Stephen's reference to this burial site in Shechem was outside the Holy Land in, in hated Samaritan territory. God had delivered Israel from famine. 
He had brought them in peace to Egypt through the hand of Joseph. And not only that, but Jacob's entire family died in Egypt. And yet God continued to work. The omnipotent hand of God had no human prohibitions. God is not bound by just working in temples or or churches or even families or nations or geographical sites or locations. In the Old and New Testament, we see the, the sovereignty of God moving wherever he wants to move, period. And the men judging Stephen had put God in a, in a little box. And what Stephen's sermon does is brilliantly and quickly untying the, the wrappings to let God out. I mean, is it not true, including the church of America, that we put God in a box? We do it by thinking, this is the way God's going to move. This is the way he did it with me in the past, so he's got to do it this way now. God's going to do it through this, you know, denominational stream. We got the corner on the market. This is the way God is going to operate, but he's certainly not going to move with those people, you know, those people. We've got the way that God's going to move. We understand how he's doing it. And usually what we do when we see God moving in our life, we, we want to put a formula on that. We want to wrap it up and then basically claim that that's the only way God's going to move in other people. And it's simply not the case. We can't box God in. All right? We're fond of saying God won't or God can't. But may we reject those notions. And may we invite God to do the impossible in us, through us, and realize that he works in other people. He may even work in people who aren't in our specific theological stream. We can't box God in. Let us allow God to work in us as he wills. Let's pray.